This is a Federal News Network podcast. A long-awaited reform bill backers hope will save the Postal Service more than $100 billion, now headed to President Joe Biden's desk. This after the Senate passed the Postal Service Reform Act, and this ends a 2006 mandate to pre-fund retiree health benefits. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy supports the bill. So do postal associations and unions. For one reaction, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the president of the American Postal Workers Union, Mark Diamondstein. The core of the bill that's so important, you already touched on. This pre-funding mandate from 2006, uh, what was called the Postal Accountability Enhancement Act. I did something to the post office that no other government agency, no other private corporation has to do. And it really strangled the post office financially. And that was a demand, a draconian, unfair, onerous demand that the Postal Service pre-fund retiree health benefits 75 years into the future. For people that not only didn't work at the post office yet, in some cases back in 2006, weren't even born yet. And so... What happened is the post office had this terrible burden. It led to all sorts of slashing and cutting of services. And this legislation would do away with that pre-funding mandate. Now, some listeners may say, well, that was done in 10 years and it's already passed that. The post office couldn't even pay it. It drained $5.5 billion out of the postal treasury each year. And by the way, the post office was successfully paying these benefits on a pay-as-you-go basis, which everybody else So there was no need for this. And it created a manufactured crisis. So what happened is the post office paid as much as they could, and then they didn't pay the rest. So on the one hand, it drained out all these finances, no taxpayer dollars. The post office runs on its revenue. So all these billions of dollars went out of what needed to be put towards better service to the people of the country. And then they couldn't pay the rest. So this legislation would do away with that onerous pre-funding mandate. It would cancel out the, the, quote, debt that the post office owes the Treasury for the time they couldn't pay. And then it would return more or less to what we call a pay-as-you-go system for future retiree health benefits. So when those benefits need to be paid, the post office simply pays it. And so that will go a long way in addressing some of the financial squeeze that the 2006 law put on the Postal Service. And when the Postal Service, when that money comes back into the postal system, It gets turned into better staffing, which gets turned into better service. It gets turned into better equipment, better buildings, better vehicles. And so we're very excited that we're on the cusp, we certainly hope so, of passing solid postal reform on a strong bipartisan basis. Well, that is certainly a huge part of the bill. I think another big part of the bill here is just in terms of retiree health benefits for future postal retirees. The bill requires all future postal retirees to enroll in Medicare once they're eligible. In terms of what this bill offers for current and future postal retirees, how satisfied are you with that arrangement? We think it's fair to workers. We think it's fair to the Postal Service. We think it's fair to Medicare. Most of the people listening into this radio show are tied somehow into the federal system. So it's very important to point out that it doesn't change the fact that postal retires will be part of FEED, part of the Federal Employee Health Benefit Program, still monitored and overseen by OPM. What it does, though, is when we reach retirement, when we are retired and we reach Medicare eligibility, that in order to keep the FEED plan, we have to be in Medicare A and B. 80% of our people, our retirees, do that voluntarily because it's good for us financially health-wise, and so on. It does away with all the out-of-pocket costs of health care. 
And so the other 20%, and again, it's very important to point out, and you actually mentioned it, this is for future retirees. It doesn't affect those who are already retired. They've made their choices for retirement under the old system. And so it's fair. We pay into Medicare. The Postal Service pays into Medicare. The individuals pay into Medicare. This is a de minimis impact on the Medicare trust fund that's out there. And we think it's just the right thing. So it should save money because our premiums will be somewhat less. It'll save money for the Postal Service because their part of the premiums will be a little less because Medicare will become the primary health care provider and fee will become the secondary. And as I said, most postal retirees already do this voluntarily because the relatively small cost of being in Medicare B, and there is some cost to it, is mitigated by the coverage and also will be mitigated over time to less premiums on the postal service group within FEB. To talk about a different segment of the bill here, one that's maybe in the miscellaneous category, USPS and its emerging role as a storefront for other government services, it seems like this opens the door for more of that. And so from your perspective on things, where do you see the art of the possible here in terms of the Postal Service doing more of this work? We're big fans of expanded postal services to the people of the country on many fronts. And for instance, on the whole financial service front, we're excited about the idea of People use the general term of postal banking, but at least expanded financial services, paycheck cash, and so on. In this particular case, we're very excited that the bill has the provisions that the postal service can carry that same relationship that they have with the federal sector now in terms of services to the uh, local and state level. Now, those would have to be worked out. The state governments would want to have the post office do certain things. But for instance, why couldn't the post office do uh, fishing licenses, hunting licenses, even some motor vehicle questions. You have some states where for people to actually get government services, state government services in person, sometimes people have to drive 60, 70, 80, 90 miles to get them. And in their own town, there's a post office right there. So we are excited about the prospect. It's written very broad. So once the bill passes and we're optimistic that it will, then the post office management side will have to get to work on how to relate to the various local and state government entities. That's an important part of the bill. And we're also very pleased in the bill, uh, Jory, if I can go to that, is six-day delivery as the law. That's good for the people of the country. And there's been this constant threat over the last few decades. Maybe we should go to five-day delivery. What about three-day delivery? What about four-day delivery? But if the postal services are there for everybody, every address, that universal service mandate we're so proud of, every address, no matter who we are and where we live. It needs to be there all the time, especially in a period of e-commerce, if that's going to work for everybody. But whatever's in the mail, whether it's a ballot, whether it's medicine, whether it's a birthday card, whether it's financial transactions, the post office needs to be there for the people every day. That will now become part of the law when this bill passes. Mark Diamondstein, president of the American Postal Workers Union, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity. 
and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, 
always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.